Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today we're going to look at the week of six Epiphany, the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. For those of you that are joining us perhaps for the first or second time, the Epiphany is the date of January the 6th, and it's called an immovable date, meaning the day never changes. It's always January the 6th, much like Christmas Day is always December 25th, but Easter could be any number of 30 different days. Easter is not a fixed day, but January the 6th is, and we celebrate the epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happens there is the Magi from the East come and offer gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. They see the star in the East, they go and visit Herod. Herod gives him instructions as to where they think the baby is. They go there, they're warned in a dream not to return to deal with Herod because Herod wants Jesus killed. Jesus uh, is now going to show himself, epiphanos is the Greek word from epiphany, appearing. Jesus is going to appear and he's going to illustrate his kingdom. He's going to illustrate himself. He's going to show himself. Now, this year, Epiphany has many weeks to it because Easter is late. Easter is April the 17th. So Ash Wednesday is late. It's into March. And Epiphany goes many weeks. When Easter is early, like late March, then the number of weeks is much shorter. We are in the week of six epiphany, the sixth Sunday after the epiphany is the correct title. Now we're going to look at these scriptures this week. Genesis, and we're looking at chapter 29 through chapter 35. We're going to be looking at 1 John. Now 1 John was written by John the Apostle, who also wrote the Revelation or the Apocalypse, and he also wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so we'll be looking at three chapters in 1 John, and this same author, John, has several gospel lessons that we're going to look at. Remember, we've been looking at John now for several weeks, John 9, John 10, and the beginning of John 11. So those are our scriptures for the week, and I hope that you enjoy uh, this conversation that we're having. Hope to offer you some insights and some ideas to think about. Again, as you're reading, pray, listen to the Holy Spirit, read the words slowly and carefully. You may not understand everything that's written there. That's okay. If you have a study Bible at the bottom of the study Bible, our notes regarding the passage. You might want to look that up. Okay? All right, let's begin. Genesis 29. Now, Genesis is 50 chapters. It's basically divided into several sections. The first 11 chapters from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 are pre-Abraham. Genesis 12 through Jacob, somewhere in the 20s, is the uh, man, the first person called by God, Abraham. And then he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we're in those chapters right now with Jacob and Esau. And then beginning in 
chapter 37 is Joseph. This is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And 37 to 50 are the wonderful exploits of Joseph. All right, we're gonna look at 29 to 35 today. In chapter 29, we have Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel and his a listing of his children. Now, the reason that's so important is these are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 is a very, very important number in the Bible. Jesus had 12 disciples. That was not by mistake or coincidence. It was very intentional. It represented the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, because in Joshua, God raises him up, Joshua, to lead the people into Israel, the land that God had promised. In Judges, we have the division of the land by the 12 sons. And then as we go into the other history books, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, we'll look at the division of the kingdom by kings, and that is Saul, David, and Solomon. But the way the land was divided at the beginning was according to the 12 sons. 12 sons came from Jacob. The sons came from the marriages that Jacob had. Then you can follow the sons and the wives in that way. Please enjoy. And so what we have in 29 and 30 are stories about the 12 sons that he has, okay? Chapter 31, Jacob flees from Laban, and Laban pursues Jacob. Now, we're going back and forth here in this wonderful tete-a-tete with uh, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, who's Rachel's father. And so Jacob is a very devious person. Remember how we said recently how Jacob deceived Esau and took his birthright for porridge? Esau is very upset with Jacob because he's been very mean to him. He's deceived him, and Esau wants to get Jacob back. And so when you read chapters 31 and 32, you're going to see the tete-a-tete between the two brothers. At the end of 32, from 22 to 32, is a very famous passage in Israel's history. And you'll see that in verse 28. This is the wrestling of Jacob with God. I will not let you go unless you bless me, verse 26. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, verse 29, Please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So Jacob literally did wrestle with God. And the name that God gave him, Israel, means he struggles with God. Isn't that an interesting Interpretation of what Israel means. He struggles with God, and that goes all the way back to Jacob. Okay? It goes all the way back to Jacob. So Jacob called the place Peniel, verse 30, 
I saw God face to face and my life was spared. What an encounter, a divine encounter with God Almighty. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, verse 31, and he was limping because of his hip because he touched him on his socket. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Okay, so he wrestled with the Lord. He met the Lord face to face. And that was a great encounter for Jacob to have to deal with the Lord. And then in chapter 33, we have Jacob meeting Esau. He thinks he's going to die here. He thinks Esau is going to kill him. Um, so they somehow reconcile with one another. And in verse chapter 35, Jacob returns to Bethel or Bethel. Some people call that Bethel. Verse 9. After Jacob returned to Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. Now you can see how important the blessing of God is that Jacob seeks. Remember, he sought it from his father, Isaac. Isaac, remember, is the son of Abram, Abraham. And remember Isaac and Ishmael. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has the 12 sons. Okay, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. That's a very wonderful, important line, 3510 in Genesis. God appeared to him again and blessed him. So he's been blessed by God through his father. He's been blessed by God in chapter 32. And he's been blessed by God from Returning from Padan Haram, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be called Israel. So he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. Remember, that's the uh, message that God gave Abram. Abram at the time, later became Abraham. He was going to bless him and make his descendants prosperous. It was important that Abram and his followers and all of his fathers in his lineage would follow the Lord and serve the Lord. So we see in chapter 35, verse 23, you see the sons of Leah there? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilkah, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Haram. So we have the relationship between Jacob and Esau and trying to work that through given their history. And of course, then the birth of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Let's go to the back of the Bible to 1 John chapter one. Now 1 John are short, fairly short chapters and this is before the book of Revelation. Very, very, very good theology in 1 John. He writes five chapters, and we are looking at the first three. One of the first scriptures I memorized in my life was verse 9 of chapter 1. I commend it to your memorization, potentially. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, so I memorized verse 9, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So in order to get right with God, we need to confess our sins. Very important to repent. And so if we confess them, he is going to forgive us and he is going to cleanse us. At the beginning of chapter 1, we talk about who Jesus is and about the fact that they met him, they saw him, they touched him, and they believe in him. So their message that they're sharing with us is a, a message that is true. Verse 5 of chapter 2, If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So John has got some theology in there, and he's got some great uh, ethics, meaning he tells us the way that he wants us to live. I, we see that in 15, chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man or the woman who does the will of God lives forever. All right? So he's telling us what not to do, and he tells us what to do. First John is a beautiful synopsis of the Christian faith and a beautiful exposition of the word of God. As we go through chapter 2, please enjoy reading. Let's get chapter 3. How great is the love of the Father that it's lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. You are a child of God. You who have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you are a child of God and God loves you. This is what we are. Chapter 3, verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So, Knowing Christ is the key. Repenting of your sins is important. Knowing that God loves you is important. We are children of God, verse 2. We are children of God. You are a child of God if you put your trust in the Lord. He says in verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins. In him there is no sin. Remember I've mentioned before that there are scriptures in the Bible that say that Jesus never sinned. Well, here's a good example of that. Jesus does not sin, has not sinned. He has taken away our sins. Look at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Came to die for our sins. Came to show us the love of the Father. Came to show us how much God loves us. Came to reconcile our lives back to God. He came to die for us. In chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, we talk about loving Christ and what God's love for us is about. This is how we know what love is. Verse 16, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Pretty much sums up this Christian faith. Let us not love with words or tongue. Words are cheap. Let's do it with actions, and let's do it truthfully. That's my prayer for all of us. This is why we read the Bible, one of the many reasons, so we'll know what the truth is, and we'll know what God wants us to do. Those first three chapters of 1 John are beautiful examples of that. Also, we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we see the very same thing. It's just done in a different way. 
Now Jesus is alive. First John, obviously, he has been resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. But in his ministry in chapter 9, we see the very famous, the man born blind. So this person is born blind, puts mud with saliva, puts it on the man's eyes, says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes, he comes home seeing. Now this is a person that's born blind. There is no capacity in his life to heal. There's no capacity to be healed. He cannot heal himself. And what's fascinating about this scripture is this tete-a-tete with the Pharisees who investigate the healing, who talk to even the parents, verify that this person actually is a person who was born blind, and he actually can see. And so remember how I have spoken to you in uh, recent podcasts about John and the dialogues in John, particularly in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, and now we see it in 9. This extended uh, dialogue with the Pharisees and what you do with a person that heals somebody, but you don't believe them, but you know the person got healed. He famously says, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He is from God, and this is a sign that he is from God because he has power to heal. In chapter 10, we see the good shepherd. I'm the gate for the sheep in chapter 10, verse 7. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly in chapter uh, 10, verse 10, one of my favorite verses. I love to quote that verse. God wants you to have abundant life and have it to the full. In verse 11, he says that he's the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down the life for the sheep. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me and I know them. The reason my father loves me, verse 17, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. So Jesus is the good shepherd, very famous um, symbol. He takes care of his sheep. He uh, protects them. He guards them. He keeps them safe. That is the idea that you want to have. Of course, we're thinking about Psalm 23, where God is taking care of you. Jesus is taking care of you. You're in the sheepfold. You are protected by the shepherd. God loves you, God is with you, God has forgiven you, you are one of God's children. Again, we see the fact that there's going to be conversation again in the second half of chapter 10. Enjoy that conversation. Enjoy it in 9, 10, and 11. And they actually want to stone him. Verse 33, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The Jews are saying, you're claiming to be God. We know you're not God. Of course, he is God. That's why he's claiming to be God, because he is. But they don't believe that he is. Even after, in chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. They still are not convinced. In chapter 11, in verses 1 through 16, we have the fact that Lazarus, his friend, dies. He waits four days, and then he goes and visits him. Why does he wait four days? Because he wants to make sure that he's dead. There was a Jewish belief that the spirit hovered for three days, but the fourth day leaves. So he wants to make sure no one thinks that this 
person, Lazarus, is in any way alive. And so he is now going to go and he is going to raise him from the dead and they cannot believe this is going to happen. And we will pick up that story uh, next week when we look at the rest of chapter 11. But uh, in chapter 9, you're looking at a miraculous healing of the man born blind and the contentiousness of the Jewish leaders. In chapter 10, Jesus talks about himself being the good shepherd and taking care of the sheep. He talks about the wolf that's coming to destroy, but God, uh, in, through Christ, is going to save us. And then in the second half of that chapter, we have the contentious Jewish folks again, the Pharisees, uh, arguing with Jesus. And then 11, we have a stupendous miracle of someone being raised from the dead. Enjoy 1 John and a wonderful exposition of how God wants us to live as Christian people and the formation of Israel and the naming of Israel through Jacob and Jacob's tete-a-tete with God Almighty face-to-face and the birth of the 10, 12 children who become the tribes of Israel. God bless you. Next week, we'll be looking at the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany. Enjoy your reading.